The goal of Professor Thomas Helliday's research is to exploit tumour defects for the targeted treatment of cancer. In this podcast, Professor Helliday explains what cancer is, the problems of treating it, and the success of his own research in developing new treatments. What brought you into medical research? So I was always interested in, in medicine, and I started off actually being a nurse's assistant at a local hospital when I was 16 years old. And I was dropped into a cancer unit, and a hematology unit, where they had leukemias. And, and those patients were suffering tremendously. And, and I, as a really young boy, I could see these patients dying. And that was the first experience with death for me, which was very traumatic. I felt at the time that the drugs that were used were quite medieval, in a sense. The patients were suffering dramatically, and they were also not working. They were still dying. Obviously, I was seeing a lot of terminally ill patients and those without hope. So, at the time, I felt felt very strongly for it. And, and I realized that maybe being a nurse's assistant or, or actually being seeing the patients directly was maybe not the things that what I should be doing because I was too emotionally involved in, in these cancer patients. But it did spring an idea to me that I did want to develop new therapies for cancer. And so I went on studying more of the biology. I was interested in more of the biology of the cancer. So what is cancer and, and, and sort of understanding, understanding this in more general terms. So that's where I sort of started off. And when I did my undergraduate degrees, I was always very interested in cancer. And I, I see that along, uh, among a lot of students of today, that a lot of students are very interested in cancer. If you start to mention cancer research, they almost immediately there's a spark sort of in the eyes of the students. And, and it's always easier to talk about cancer rather than just talk about some bacterial replication, which might not be as topical for the students as cancer. Do you teach undergraduates about cancer? I have been teaching undergraduates cancer at the other universities. I'm here, I'm at an institute, a cancer research institute, so we don't have many undergraduate students here. So this is a devoted institute to be 100% into cancer research. So that means that when I see students now, I see them usually when they come as a graduate students, when they've already done their first degree. Does the institute here have any partnerships with clinical units? Oh yes, indeed we do. We are a translational unit, which means that we want to use the basic knowledge we have of cancer research and, and the, what we develop, and then we want to connect it with a clinic and, and try to develop, to use this information we have about cancer to, to develop new drugs and to see how we can improve the, the therapies in the clinic. And so there's a, a very close connection. Even my wife is, is an oncologist here. So we obviously, we, we see, each, I see my wife obviously all the time, but, <laughs> but I also see a lot of other oncologists and, and we are always constantly discussing new clinical trials. Also, there are oncologists working at, in our institute as well that are coming more from the cancer side, also seeing patients. So the head of our unit is a uh, clinical oncologist originally and there's a lot of senior researchers here that are clinical oncologists and radiation oncologists. You can't really separate the two I must say. 
So before we talk about the therapies, perhaps we should briefly talk about what cancer is. Cancer is a normal cell in our body that has sort of gone wild. It has uh, indefinitely started to replicate, and it's uncontrolled. The body has no control of how to stop it replicating. Normal cells also divide and, and grow. But when they come in contact with other cells, there are signals to stop them continue to grow. So cancer cells, they've lost these, these signals to stop growing. And also they, normal cells, in order to grow, they need to have specific growth factors. They need to have signals to the cells to grow. But there's been a shortcut in the cell. So they don't need the outside signaling. They don't need the body to tell if the cell should divide or not. The cells can divide themselves. So this is a problem. So then, then these cells start to divide and continue to divide uh, without any control. So that is basically what cancer is. And then there are several stages of cancer. The first stage is that you have some increased proliferation, some increased growth. And this is not so dangerous. And there is a lot of benign tumours that can grow out and then they stop growing because there are also mechanisms which we study, the tumour barrier that stops the cells from continuing to grow. And then this tumour barrier can be impaired. And when this tumour barrier is impaired, they can continue to grow even more. But then you can get a more malignant tumour. But still this is rather easy to treat by surgery, for instance. If you surgically remove this tumour, you can get rid of the problem. However, spreading of the tumour, metastasis, is what is really nasty and what is killing the organism. That is what is really difficult. And then when you have a tumour that has spread through, throughout in the body, it's very difficult to surgically remove these tumours. And then you need to go into chemotherapy. Because radiotherapy, normally radiotherapy is used for localised tumours, which is also very efficient. Combined with surgery, radiotherapy is very, very efficient. And this is the most common ways of treating cancer. That is, first, surgery is the most common way. The second way is radiotherapy. And when the tumour has started to spread, then you have to use chemotherapy. So what begins the uncontrollable division of cells? What's the origin of cancer? So normally, this is a cancer-causing gene. So you have cancer-causing genes. Those can be, for instance, external. If you have a virus infection, the virus can carry this cancer-causing genes, oncogenes we call them. So the virus can introduce these oncogenes and make the cell start to grow, start to proliferate. You can also have uh, genetic defects. You can have, uh, for instance, some damage to your DNA so that you can get rearrangements in your DNA or mutations that will cause that you have more, for instance, receptors on your cell surface, which will cause a stronger growth signal than in normal cells. You can have mutations, which is a small change in a single gene that can stop the dependence of the outside signaling, making these cells grow indefinitely. So there, And then there is also, of course, the inherited defects. You can have an inherited defect, which will facilitate the cells to start to to grow more rapidly. At what stage can you detect these genetic markers? Unfortunately, it is very difficult to find the single cell that has been infected by a virus, given that we have so many cells in the body. But theoretically, we could be able to 
detected already from start. This is probably not so meaningful because we have a lot of benign tumours. We have moles, for instance. You could see those as sort of a benign tumour. You have some a little bit uncontrolled growth, but then they stop growing. So we have a lot of these events going on. And, and in a sense, then, it's not no point of sort of trying to detect these really, really early tumours or these really early genetic events because they will never grow out into a tumour. They will stop. The, the body will take care of those difficulties. So they, there's really no issue on, on, on doing it so early. It's when the tumours start to grow, when they are starting to become sort of bigger, then that's become a problem. And also when they, of course, when they become malignant and where they lose the tumour barrier. So the tumour barrier is the really critical... What causes the tumour barrier to fail? There are some milestone discoveries that have been made in cancer. And one milestone discovery was uh, finding mutations in, in a gene called, for instance, P53. The P53 gene is a tumour suppressor gene, which is a gene that suppresses the tumour growth and then works as a tumour barrier. So about 30 years ago it was discovered a gene. This gene was discovered and this gene is very important in stopping the tumours to continue to grow. Now we have discovered a, a whole range of tumour suppressor genes, a whole other proteins involved in this tumour barrier. So obviously there's a lot of different details to this, but usually those are inactivated by mutations in, in the early cancers. If a surgeon was to remove a malignant tumour, would they be more likely to have cancer again because they've had it before? Not necessarily, no. Obviously, if you've had cancer, that's a risk factor. If you already had the cancer, that could mean that you have some inherited predisposition to develop cancer. That could, of course, then be predisposing you to also develop other tumours. If you, for instance, have been smoking or if you have had some other lifestyle, alcohol consumption, for instance, or being out in the sun very much, sun burning a lot, uh, or sun tanning, then obviously you would be at a greater risk of developing cancer in the first place. But cancer is a stochastic event, so you might get a cancer in any case. And if you remove that tumour, well, you will likely not develop a tumour there if it hasn't been spreading. You've mentioned some of the factors which make it more likely for you to uh, develop cancer. Are there lifestyle choices that we can make to minimise our risk of cancer? Yes, there is. For instance, avoid smoking is probably one of the major issues and, and something that the Cancer Research UK and, and Richard Doll here in Oxford was the first one to observe the link between tobacco smoking and cancer risk. I think that it's very important to stop smoking be very gentle with being out in the sun. And I think there it's very important to say that it's in the middle of the day when the sun is strongest that you have the highest risk of getting sunburns. So if you go out at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, you will not be as likely to get as bad sunburn as you would during the middle of the day. So avoid the sun in the middle of the day especially for people here in the northern countries. And me, myself, I'm from Sweden, so indeed we need to be careful about being out in the sun. I think also what you eat. It is well established that if you eat fruit and vegetables, that is associated with a lot lower risk of getting cancer. 
while having red meat and alcohol consumption is associated with an increased risk of cancer. Also, if you're overweight, this is also a, a risk factor for increasing cancer. So I think, in general, you could say that the healthy style living is preventing cancer, and why the, the bad stuff <laughs> is, is, is causing cancer. And this is not always the case, but often this is the case. It's often the case that one knows someone that has developed cancer. Is it really as common as we perceive it to be, especially across the world? Mm. It is indeed very, very common. The major cause of death is cardiovascular diseases, but in the Western world we are decreasing the number of deaths caused by cardiovascular diseases. We are improving the therapies massively. So now, actually, the risk, if you're age 75 or below, the number one killer is cancer. So it is very common. About one-third of women and about half of men will develop cancer during their lifetime. Not necessarily will they die from it, but they will develop it. And unfortunately, the, the number of cancer cases is increasing, which is also th something that we should be concerned about. The deaths of cancer is somewhat decreasing, but certainly we have not won the war against cancer. We are still a long, long way of, of doing that. We spoke briefly earlier about some of the treatments. What are the treatments for cancer? Yeah, so, so the, the most common way uh, is surgery. And, and it's important to discover a tumour very early because if you do that, then you can surgically remove the tumour and that is usually a very successful way of, of treating the cancer, especially if it hasn't been spreading. Even if it's been spreading and often together with, with surgery, radiotherapy is combined with it. And together with radiotherapy, surgery is very, very efficient in curing patients. So the most common way is surgery. Number two is radiotherapy. And then we have chemotherapy, which is coming on as number third. And those are basically these, what I call, medieval drugs that are very reactive compounds, like mustard gas that was used in the World War I. So if you give mustard gas in lower doses, you will not kill the patient but you will kill the cancer. So this is used, and we have a lot of other very, very nasty drugs. We are developing more tailored therapies now. Now we know a lot more of the cancer, the genes involved in, in cancer. We are tailoring the treatments much more now so that we can develop therapies with a lot fewer side effects. For instance, there is family predisposition for getting breast cancer, inherited breast and ovarian cancer, and if you have a mutation in those genes, you have a very high risk of developing these tumours. And now we have treatments that are very mild, which is using the defect, exploiting the defect to selectively kill off the tumour cells without harming normal cells. So this is nothing like nitrogen mustard or mustard gas that we talked about. This is a very, very tailored therapy that will cause no side effects. So I, I've been developing one of those therapies and we're very pleased with it now. We have patients that respond well to the therapies and report of, of them getting back their lives because they have been through these very hard chemotherapies and now they get these novel, very tailored treatments that are not giving so, much, so many side effects. And this is of course life-changing for them and they can go back and live more normal lives.
Are these treatments targeted for specific cancers? So each of those treatments are targeted for a specific sub-sort of the cancer. So this drug that I talked about, that we developed, is something that is tailored only for those cancers with a family history. And it doesn't work on most other cancers. Some other breast cancers have an amplified gene and Herceptin is tailored to, to treat those specifically. So you have different drugs for different type of cancers and, and we will go into much more details in the future as well on how to subgroup different cancers and how to selectively treat those cancers. The research that you've been doing is very specific. Can you use any of the basic data to then research a drug for another type of cancer? Oh yes, we are looking at the fundamentals of cancer. So we are interested in the tumour barrier and how the cancer is developing and, and what is going wrong in the cancer. And then we see what is the cancer using, what is critical for the cancer to survive, rather than normal cells don't use. So normal cells don't divide so much, they don't need the whole apparatus. And while the cancer cell have lost certain control functions, so they rely much more heavily on other functions. So these functions are, it's like a car engine. You have different type of cancers have different faults in the, in the engine, but they're all mad. They're all, they're all, all the engines are really running mad. So what we do is that we study the engine. And then we found that, for instance, the breast cancers have one defect and then we can exploit that with, with another way by sort of cutting off the, the engine, the cancer engine. And now we are looking at prostate cancer, we are still studying the same mechanisms. We're still studying the engine, but the prostate cancer has a different fault on the engine. So we can use our information and we have now found another part of the engine that is essential for the prostate cancer. So hopefully we have a drug within a few years for prostate cancer. So in a very similar way we, we can study we study the engine and then the engine is essential for, for all cars and cancers to drive. So I think that there is hope that we can actually find a selective treatment for all cancer. We just need to study the engine enough so that we understand exactly how this particular cancer subgroup is using the engine to drive the cancer. And then we know, oh, they have a fault with a, with a generator or whatever, and then we can hit it using a combination of drugs or, or using the knowledge we have from other cancers. What's the time scale for these drugs? I think for the, for the first drug I talked about, the first time I saw it in the lab was in 2002. That was the absolutely first time I saw it. And then it was published in 2005, so it did take some time before we published it. And then it came into patients already in 2006. And it's now been in phase two, so it's still lacking a phase three trial before it can be sold on the market. But a lot of patients now worldwide have access to this drug. So this is an example when it goes fairly quickly. More commonly it goes a little slower than this. For instance for the prostate cancer we are still in the process of doing the chemistry to identify the, the best drug to use. So it will take a little longer. For prostate cancer I would, I would say a 10 year period. 
and to sort of know exactly how the cancer engines are running and to basically be able to find a cure for all cancer I would say that we're still this depends a lot on the on how we are able how the scientists are able to collaborate so I think that's a major issue that how can we collaborate and today we don't have a forum to sort of integrate all our knowledge into one model so everybody is building their own models in their labs and obviously a very very complicated engine such as the engine of life you can't build in your own lab you have to join up labs and and to really get this going together and the format for this is how we can do it and make it work it's not really there yet so I think we need to establish that before we can find the selective cures for all cancer I'd say at best we are 30 years away worst it will take another 60 years before we can cure almost all cancer Are you collaborating with anyone outside of Oxford now? Oh yes, I'm, I'm a professor in Sweden I maintain my professorship in Sweden and I have a research group there and then I collaborate with many countries in Europe and uh, the United States and Canada and some collaborations with Japan and then I have students of course coming from all over the world so it's a very international arena but it doesn't really matter where you come from I think the collaborations arise out of common interests When you develop the drugs for cancer does cancer evolve and develop or does it not? Like diseases might mutate so that the drugs no longer work will that happen with cancer? Yes, there are resistant mechanisms so for instance if you use a drug and patients respond to the drug for instance, the one that we just recently developed, uh, we can see that a fraction of the patients that should respond, they may respond initially, but then the tumors start to grow anyhow, and they can develop resistance. So this is a problem, and there are ways. There, the, the cancer engine is very complex. This is life, so it's trying to work out way of living. <laughs> and so, so they, they will shortcut something else. And, and make sure that they can keep on dividing and living. So we have addressed this issue in this particular case. Um, we have now found a new way of actually treating the resistant cells, and we're taking that into clinical trial later this year or early next year to try on patients. So this is an ongoing battle. So we come up with drugs, the cancer cells respond to them, develop resistance against them, and then continue to grow. It is fair to say that we will not have a single drug that will be an ultimate cure for all cancer. I certainly don't believe that, because there are so many ways of developing resistance. So I think that we need to have this battle going on, and we have to see, well, you had some cells escaping, some cancer cells escaping, and then we have to catch those and see how those behave, and and then target them again. And this will go on, but there is a finite way of the cancer cell, that how it can evolve, and finally we will come to the end of the road and beat it, if the patient is still alive, that is. <laughs> so you mentioned maybe 30 to 60 years. Mm. What do you think will be the next major breakthrough in cancer therapy? I think sort of the next scientific breakthrough that at least I'm waiting for is to have, have this engine put together 
have a new forum, a new way of putting together the engine so that everybody can work on the same engine. It's like if you want to build a rocket to the moon, if you would have every scientist building their own rocket and see who will get to the moon first, it would take a long, long time. Rather get the scientists together and they can actually help each other to build the rocket. They actually got to the moon already, now it's 40 years ago. I think that is what we need to do. I'm sort of missing the, the forum for this. I think we will need to see a breakthrough, in, in which is probably a more organisational kind of breakthrough. But we need a new way of thinking. And if I, if I knew the answer, I would be very happy. But fortunately, I don't. Do you have much support from government and international organisations like the EU, the WHO? Yes, we do. We, we do have a lot of support from the British government and from the Cancer Research UK. We have some support from the European Union. But the European Union has, has a very strange agenda in my mind. And I think that they need to sharpen up sort of the scientific level of, of the research they are funding. EU, it, it is a big organisation and it's very difficult to run the research from centrally in Europe. We are certainly not doing it the same way as they do in the States. If you compare the European Union and the NIH and the National Cancer Institute in, in the States, the difference is enormous. They are much more professional and much better in the States than we are in Europe because there are so many other political issues in the States, they, are, they have scientific issues when it comes to science. In Europe, there's a lot of political issues, which is very unfortunate. Luckily for us, for, from Cancer Research UK and from, and from the government, the British government, there's less of that, there's less politics. I think this is probably one of the reasons for Britain to be very successful in, in science in general, is that the politicians do not interfere with the science too much the politicians go with the best science rather than trying to influence science. Most of the European countries want to influence the science and direct the research in their way, which is not really working, because you have to let the cat free to explore. You can't say, you have to find the fish in that pond. The, the cat will not want that. It wants to explore and find the fish wherever it, wherever it wants to find it. So I think the British government is very good in the research policies. Cancer Research UK is also very, making a very direct and concerted effort into, into the research into cancer.